the scripture reading today is from Nehemiah 9, verses 1 to 37. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated them from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shinani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Heshabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all uh, blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you, gave, kept, you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of your fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast, cast their pursuers into the depth as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and, your, and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up to Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. 
So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fed and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebellant against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned, warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to keep going. I may not have printed it out properly. <laughs> Verse 33 says, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our, our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And yet its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document the names of our princes, Levites, and our priests. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> did I print it off wrong, or did you just stop? You just give up? She just gave up. That's a long reading. Thank you, Lydia. She did her best. I'd give up too. Uh, great. Uh, it's an amazing passage um, that uh, we're going to try to unpack some of today. Um, as well as continuing 
our study in Nehemiah, we're also continuing to look at what we started to unpack last week, uh, which is what's, what does spiritual renewal look like? What does it look like when God awakens His people? Um, so if your heart was stirred at all by Nehemiah 8 last week, um, today's essentially kind of like part two, continuation. Um, if you missed last week, I do encourage you to go back and listen to that, not because what I said was so great, but because chapter 9 won't make full sense without chapter 8. You really need both of them, um, vice versa as well. They go really close together. So um, last week we saw in chapter 8 the, the point of all the rebuilding projects that we've been seeing in Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the building of the temple, the city walls, the gates, the purpose uh, of all of those things was uh, the people, right? right? The, the, the purpose was so that God could reawaken and spiritually uh, renew his, his people. Uh, we looked at last week some of the markers of revival. Um, I liked uh, Norman Grubb's description of revival. He says it's when the roof comes off and the walls come down. Uh, the, when the roof comes off and there's this particular palpable awareness of God's holiness, of who God is, his righteousness, but also the walls come down with our brothers and sisters and there's forgiveness and reconciliation and humility. Um, last week, we looked at some of those markers of spiritual renewal, and in our missional communities this week, we, we try to have the, some discussions of what, are, what does some of that look like? It's not a formula that you kind of put into place and out pops revival, but, but, but are some of those things happening in our church family? Um, many of them are, uh, but, but I've really had it on my heart to press in on the, the hunger and um, what you saw last week is it's this, this people of God, this genuine people of God gathered in unity who are hungry to hear from God. They're, they're desperate for Him and His presence to hear from Him. Um, and, and so that was the main question, I think, last week was, are you hungry? Are, are, you, are you desperate for Him? Uh, because one of the sheer markers of every great revival in history is it always starts with this, a small group of, of hungry believers uh, crying out to God in prayer, desperate to hear from Him, asking Him to come. And so if last week was centered on, on hunger of God as a, a key kind of marker of renewal, this week we're going to take a closer look at uh, the appropriate response of uh, the people who are awakened. What's the appropriate response of uh, a people who, John Piper says, are, are lifted out of their indifference, are lifted out of their worldliness? Um, and what we see is they respond with confession and repentance. Um, so I, I'm going to try to answer this question this morning. When God turns up and he answers the prayers of his hungry people, when, when he pours out his spirit and he gives these hungry believers an understanding of who he is in his word, when he does that, what's the, what's the appropriate response and, and last week, we saw one aspect of the appropriate response, which is joy, right? Uh, go make great rejoicing, worship. But if you were paying close attention to chapter 8, you'll, you'll, you'll remember that joy wasn't their initial response, was it? It, it was tears. We, we learned that in chapter 8, verse 9 to, verse 9 to 12, where, where after the people are given this clear understanding of, of God's Word, Nehemiah and Ezra and the other teachers, they have to say to the people, hey, don't mourn or weep. And they had to say that because the people wept as they heard from the words from the law. And they had to tell them, hey, today's not for weeping. Today's for joy. Go feast, make great celebration, joy. 
So, so their, their initial response was, was tears, which the teachers had to come along and say, hey, let me tell you why you can not weep today, why you can have joy. It's really important. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting section, though, and I, it's, almost, it's almost a good kind of case study of like how to read your Bible, right? Because how do you interpret what's being said in that section? What's the lesson we are to take away from it? What is it telling us about the appropriate response to spiritual renewal? The question is, does chapter 8, verse 9 to 12, is it telling us that, that weeping and mourning and sorrow was the wrong response? And you can read it that way, can't you? You can read it as the teacher saying, why are you crying? Why are you grieved? That, that's not the right response. The right response is joy. Is that what it's saying? Is it saying there's never a time for mourning? Uh, spoiler alert, that's not what it's saying. Okay, I'll get that up just out at the, at the start here. That there is a time for mourning. There is, it is a, an appropriate response when, when the roof comes off and you have this, this new, deeper understanding of who God is, we weep. And chapter nine helps us to understand that better. And it gives us this, this picture of the importance and the beauty of confession and repentance. Um, let me pray one more time, and we'll look at the passage. Um, uh, God, help us. Um, would, you, would you help us this morning? Would you help us in this moment? Uh, we, we confess we, we are often indifferent. Uh, we can be like the church of Ephesus that you write to in Revelation 2, this, this, this church that loves truth but maybe has lost their first love. Lord, help us to have that, that, that love for you, um, a, a hunger for you, a desire for you. And would you meet us uh, this morning? Would you give us a deeper understanding of who you are and who we are? And may we have uh, an appropriate response. Would you show us what that looks like? Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. Amen. Um, chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read that first part again. Uh, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, so this is just after the, the Feast of Booths that we looked at at the end of chapter 8, that, that time of remembering the Lord and, and great rejoicing. Right after that, it says that the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So stop there for a minute. Let, what's the scene? What's happening? Um, it, it sounds similar to chapter 8, doesn't it? Uh, the people of Israel are, are gathered together again. What you see here is the genuine people of God gathered in unity. Uh, you get that from verse 2. It says the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners. Uh, careful not to read that with like a modern interpretation. Foreigners, bad, right? Get rid of them. That's not what this is saying at all. That, that phrase, separating themselves from the foreigners, it's, it's simply in like an Old Testament Leviticus saying that's meant to imply their dedication to the Lord rather than arrogance, okay? So that they were called to be set apart for the Lord, to have distinction from the world around them. Um, and it's the same for the church today, right? Like we are, we are called not to have an arrogance and to, to look down at non-believers around us. We're called to love them. We're, we're on mission to them, but we are called to have a distinction. We, we are called to, to be distinct 
and to be set apart for the Lord. And, and that's what this is saying. It's capturing that spirit of dedication to the Lord rather than arrogance to foreigners. So it, this is the genuine people of God gathered in unity, similar to the start of chapter 8. They're, they're seeking God's face. They're, they're hearing from Him. They're, they're, they're opening His Word. They're worshiping. Um, except there's a big difference in this gathering, isn't there? And, and you see it right there in verse 1 where it says they gathered with fasting and with sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Um, so if you're at our Ash Wednesday service, this will be very familiar. Um, and I mentioned in, at the Ash Wednesday service that in the ancient world, when you entered into a space of, of, of mourning and sorrow, uh, maybe because you lost someone you loved or because something tragic had happened to you, or as is the case here, because you were mourning sin in your life, um, oftentimes you would mark yourself with, with sackcloth and ashes. And that was just a, a public uh, demonstration telling everyone around you that, that you are in a time of mourning. And, and so this is the scene of the gathering. They, they assemble together, this time though in, in, in sackcloth and in fasting and in ashes and to, to stand and confess their sins and the sins of their, their ancestors. So it's a different atmosphere than the previous chapter, isn't it? Ch- chapter 8 was for feasting and rejoicing. Chapter 9 is for fasting and confession. Uh, so, so what what is going on? Why the grieving? They just told them in the previous chapter, don't weep and mourn, uh, make great joy. Are, are they doing what they were told not to do? Um, that's not what's happening here because the, the, the point of chapter 8 was that there wasn't that there's never a time for weeping, right? The, the tears were a, an appropriate response. Um, the point in chapter 8 was just not today. Okay, today's day for joy. There, there's, there is a time, though, for reflection on our sinfulness in light of God's holiness, which does cause us to grieve. And we also know that that's the case because it's the exact same teachers who told them not to weep in the, in the previous chapter that are now leading them in this, this service of sackcloth and ashes and, and confession. Okay, so to be clear, fasting, weeping, uh, grieving our sin is an appropriate response to understanding who God is. And so is making great rejoicing and feasting. There's a time for both. Um, in fact, the gospel, the, in the gospel, they're closely linked. They go really close, kind of side by side. I'll get to that in a minute. But um, uh, an Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, uh, he wrote, he points out that there's something interesting about the timing of these two gatherings that you see here. He says it's interesting that, that the sequence that we might expect is reversed, right? So he, the, by putting the fasting of chapter 9 after the feasting of chapter 8 is really interesting. And he offers this as an explanation that, that Nehemiah's quick reaction against the tearful response to the law at the earlier reading shows that he was profoundly eager to associate God's will with delight. So he was profoundly eager in that, in that first reading to, for the people to associate God's law with delight. And the psalmists do that all the time. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I will delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. That's the message all of Psalm 119. Um, it says, In the way of your testimonies, I delight. I will delight to do your statutes. I will not forget your word. So he wanted them to get that right from the very start. Um, because if you step back and you remember what's going on here, who are these people? They're returned exiles. 
They, they grew up in exile. They grew up uh, not with the regular preaching and, and the reading of the Torah, of God's Word. They were in captivity. But here they are finally back in the promised land. The city is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. And now it's time to build God's people again. And as I mentioned last week, what is it that forms God's people? God's Word, okay? God's Word is what forms them, and it's through the the teaching of His Word that they've grown hungry for His Word because this is what forms us. This is what shapes us. And so Nehemiah wants them to have that delight in God's Word. He, he, he doesn't want to, to quench their hunger and their thirst for God's Word at the start. So he, he quickly says in that, that tearful response in chapter 8, he says, Oh, brothers and sisters, don't weep. Don't, don't mourn because of God's Word. Delight in it. Right? He, he wants them to get that right. Delight in the Word. It, it's a lamp unto your feet. It's a light unto your path. Don't grieve because of it. Delight in it. But Kinder continues, and he says, but, but now it was equally important to set this delight firmly in contrast to the gall of sin and to face the facts of the past and the challenge of the future. He says, at this turning point in the people's history, that seven-day feast must leave behind it something more durable than just a sweet taste in the mouth. Listen to me. Joy in the Lord, that's the goal, okay? That, that's the goal. That's what you were created for. Um, this is that, you know, Piper's uh, Christian hedonism. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Like deep joy is what he wants to give to his people. He, he's calling his people from the ends of the earth, Jeremiah 31, and they come with weeping and with sorrow but what does he do? He turns their mourning into joy. He, he gives them gladness for their sorrow. That's the goal, is deep joy. But the point of chapter 9 is to give that joy of chapter 8 deep roots. It's to give that joy of chapter 8 deep roots. It gives the reason for the great joy. Chapter 9 anchors their joy so that it doesn't fizzle out. I mentioned in the Ash Wednesday service, uh, if you've never observed Ash Wednesday, if you've never uh, kind of uh, participated in Lent, if you've never been to a Good Friday service, um, you'll probably find those things strange because those services and those seasons, they're there to help us to examine ourselves and to reflect on our sinfulness, to, to reflect on our deep, desperate need of a Savior. And, and those services that season can be a little heavy, can't it? Uh, Good, Good Friday will feel like a funeral. It's, it's dark, it's heavy, it's even sorrowful, but, but that's the point. It's, it's good for a season, and that's the point because the point is Easter's coming, right? The, the point is Resurrection Sunday is coming, that, that celebration of the good news of Jesus rising victoriously from the grave on our behalf, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating Satan. That glorious celebration is everything for us, Right? Every Sunday is essentially a mini Easter Sunday. We, this is our greatest joy. But it's only when you first walk through the shadows and the valleys, the darkness of Holy Week and Good Friday and reflect on the, the reason that Christ came, the reason Christ went to the cross, namely our sin and our guilt. It's only when you reflect on that darkness and contemplate it 
and rightly grieve your own sin and your guilt, it's only then that the celebration of Easter is so glorious, right, and so bright. In his book, Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer, he links our joy with costly grace, not cheap grace. Right? He wrote, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means the, the justification of sin. It takes away the sin without the justification of the sinner, the, the guilt part of it, you know? What, what will give you the most joy in your life is when you understand how costly his grace is. And the only way to understand how costly his grace is is by looking at your sin straight in the face. And that's exactly what they are endeavoring to do in chapter 9. Verse 3, they, they stood up in their place with their sackcloth, with their ashes on, and, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. Big session, right? Similar to chapter 8, a quarter of the day, they, they listened to the word read again. I don't think we have any reason to believe that the expounding and the teaching of the word that happened in chapter 8 isn't happening here as well. There's a, a hunger for the word. But there's more that's happening on this day. And it adds, for another quarter of the day, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. That's important, right? A quarter of the day was for hearing God's word filling themselves up with God's word, being informed by God's word, understanding God's word, that's important. Bonhoeffer also wrote that revival in church life always brings in its train a richer understanding of the scriptures. And that's what you see playing out in these chapters, right? There's a hunger for God's word. They say to Ezra, bring us the word, and they attentively press in and listen to it read and taught. They gain this richer understanding of the scriptures, which as we learned last week, was this reason to make great rejoicing? But, but, but keep digging. Why all the joy? In chapter 8, verse 12, says they made great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. But I, I want to ask, well, what did you understand, though? What, what, what you understood what the words were saying. What is the understanding? What is it telling you? What do they now understand? And I think this is why, this is where you come to their initial response of tears and grief. And this is also exactly what they begin to lean, lean into and reflect upon in the prayer that follows in chapter 9. A quarter of the day reading the word and teaching the word, followed by a quarter of the day confessing and worshiping God. So, so the recognition of their sin is incredibly important even though it makes them weep. And here's what's amazing. It's, it's also the reason why they can have such great joy. It's, it's, the, it's the, the Lent Easter kind of dynamic. Their, their joy is so great because their grief was so deep in the first place. So, so a richer understanding of the Scriptures gave them a clear vision of two things. Firstly, of who God is. Okay, the, how His glory who he is, his holiness, his righteousness, the roof comes off. They have this fresh new understanding of who he is, but that also brings with it a clear understanding of who we are and a recognition of our sin and our guilt, which brings sorrow, right? But look at what happens. They don't wallow in their sorrows. They're, they're not stuck there. 
Because what does it say they do for the second quarter of the day? They made confession and worshipped. Right? They, they lament their sinfulness and their guilt, and they worshipped. Here's one of the, the things about, that's true about biblical spiritual renewal. Whether it's in like the normal working of the Holy Spirit or in these kind of accelerated, intensified times, what's true is that there's always a time for both joy and sorrow. Very often they go side by side. And very often they overlap and coincide at the same time. When the roof comes off and we're aware of God's holiness and our sinfulness, it's not a case of one or the other, joy or sorrow. Both are appropriate and both are needed. You see, the, the, the gospel's understanding of sorrow and joy vastly different than the world's understanding of those things, Right? The, the, the secular culture that we live in does everything in its power to separate and push sorrow and joy as far apart as possible, right? Get, let's get rid of every inconvenience, every bit of suffering, every bit of, heart, of, of hardship so we can just be happy. The, the goal is to be happy, so here's what we're going to do to get rid of our sorrows, and in, or in most, most scenarios, to, to at least cover them up and pretend they don't exist, right? The message of the gospel is vastly different in its understanding of sorrow and joy. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The Bible doesn't say, hey, suck it up. This is life. Um, sorrows are part of life. This is it. You have no reason to be upset. Absolutely not. The, the, the message of the, of the Bible is completely opposite of that. God says, those sorrows in your life, I hate them too. Those sorrows, I hate them. He agrees with you. This is not the way it's meant to be. You were not created to live in grief. And so the gospel message is that God sent his son to deliver you and to pull you out of your grief. But but here's the, the huge difference between the world's understanding of how we get rid of our sorrows and be happy and how the gospel says it works. The world says that that there's things causing sorrow in your life. There's things that need to be dealt with in our world. And once you deal with those things and, and push them away, then you'll be happy. The gospel says there is something in your life that's causing you sorrow, but it's not out there. It's inside of you. It's sin. Sin is what's causing the sorrow. Sin is what's wrong in this world. You're right. This isn't the way it's meant to be. But the problem is sin, and sin is in each and every single one of us. And so Jesus did come to deal with our grief and to pull you out of your sorrows. And he did that by paying the penalty of your sin and his death on the cross. And what spiritual renewal looks like, maybe for the very first time in your life, or maybe for the thousandth time, what spiritual awakening looks like is the Holy Spirit peeling off the roof of your life and giving you, through the hearing of God's word, an understanding of who God is. You begin to see his righteousness and his his holiness and his love and his costly grace. And you get a peek into your heart and you have this understanding of, of your guilt and your sin. And what you see here in this 
500 years before Christ comes, this foreshadow of the good news to come, you see how this plays out. And you see how the people respond. And what you see is not sorrow and joy being pushed as far apart as possible. You see them coming very close together. And through the hearing of God's word, their eyes are opened to their guilt before God. And so they gather in their sackcloth and with the earth on their heads to face their sin straight on, to confess their unfaithfulness, and to worship. And it's almost as if God's plan at this stage isn't to, to separate their sorrows and their joy completely. And don't misunderstand, that's God's goal for your life. That's God's plan for creation. That's the book of Revelation. It tells us that future vision Revelation 21 says that he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That's what you were created for, friends. That's the original intent for Eden in the first place. You were created for tearless, deathless, mourningless, painless joy with your creator. That, That reality is coming for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, but not yet. Here, here in the, the now and not yet, on this side of Christ's return, sorrow and joy are closely linked. And I've quoted Jeremiah 31 a few times already, but in that beautiful chapter, you see how these two things work out in your life. God calls his people from the ends of the earth, and they, they come to him with weeping, They they come to him with sorrow, but then he turns their sorrow into joy. He he gives them gladness for sorrow. He gives them feasting and satisfaction. And and that, that prophecy is fulfilled in who? Jesus. Jesus fulfills that prophecy. He's the one who will do that through his sacrifice on the cross. And so the gospel tells us that our sorrow it's actually an ingredient of joy in a way. When God gathers his people from the farthest parts of the earth, sorrow is what we come with. Sorrow and weeping and death is all we bring to the table. And through Jesus, he takes these sorrows and he transforms them into joy. Isn't that amazing? And you see that, that first, uh, you see that, that, that mourning of their sin And the joyful worship coming together right here in this scene. And their worship comes in the form of confession, right? Their understanding of who God is and who they are causes them to mourn their unfaithfulness, to lament their sins, which leads them to make confession of their sins, which is actually an act of joyful worship. Um, Are you following me so far? Um, Look at this. Um, I realize we're only in verse 3, but we're going to relatively make our way quickly through the rest of the chapter. See what it looks like. In verses 4 and 5, uh, they do this very beautiful visual thing. The Old Testament, uh, they're so good at the, the visual, um, to, to lead the people in both lament and praising. So there's this group of Levites on the stairs, and their job is to cry out to the Lord. They, they, they are voicing the distress of God's people. And then there's another group that call the people to stand up and to bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Bless your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. What cool symbolism, right? And, and then from verse 6 onwards, we read this long prayer, this, this poem 
that, that, that does exactly what those two groups of Levites were leading the people to do. The, the prayer of confession goes back and forth between here's who God is, and they declare his faithfulness and his goodness to his people, and then they reflect on their unfaithfulness to, uh, of the people to God. So it's this corporate prayer of confession, um, and it's, it's confession in both senses of the word, right? They're, they're confessing their sin. That's how we tend to think of confession, confess your sins, but it's also confession of God's glory and His greatness and His goodness. So it's, it's worship. It's, it's not just wallowing in our self-reproach. No, true biblical confession should be worship. And you see this kind of go back and forth in this prayer, how great God has been to his people and how ungrateful they've been to him. And from verse 6 to verse 31, they simply retell the story of Israel. They, they recount the story. And why are they able to do that? Because they've been filling themselves up with God's word, right? All this reading, all this teaching from his word. So it makes sense that their confession is just saturated with scripture, Right? They're not just winging the prayer. They're not just like off the top of their head seeing what kind of comes into their mind. They're praying God's word. They're letting the scripture inform their prayers. So we're trying to do this this year as well. And they begin their prayer of confession in verse six by saying, you are the Lord, you alone. That's their beginning. The roof has come off, hasn't it? There's this, there's an awareness of their sin We'll, we'll see that in their confession, but what's taking up most of their vision is not themselves, but God, right? True confession always includes an understanding of our sinfulness, but it never begins with it. True confession is all, always begins with the grand vision of who God is. And so they begin by saying, you are the Lord, you alone Similar to the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament, isn't it? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Here's who has filled our vision. Here's who, is, who we are relating to. Here's the one who hears our prayers. You'll see in their, their prayer that unfaithfulness and idolatry are big markers of their past sins. So I think that's why they are declaring, you are Yahweh. You are the existing one, you alone. There's no other. And again, through the, the reading and the teaching of God's word, their vision of God is expanding, which is causing their affections to enlarge and their desire to confess their sin and return to God is deepened. And so they pray, they say, you've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Um, what magnificent writing. Like in a single sentence, they recounted the creation story. This is who God is. He, he, he creates all. He preserves all. He's worthy to be worshiped by all. And in verse 7, they begin to, to recount Israel's story. And beginning with God choosing Abram, making this covenant with him, giving him a new name. And the end of verse 8 confesses that God has kept his promise why? Because he is righteous. That's who God is. And verse 9 moves on to the Exodus story. God saw them in their affliction in Egypt. He heard their cry at the Red Sea, and then he acts to save his people. He brings them through the Red Sea. He destroys their enemies. In verse 12, he, he guides and he cares for them through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day, by a pillar of fire by night. 
Verse 13, God comes down to visit them in, in, in Sinai. He speaks to them. He, he tells them how they are to live as his holy people. Verse 15, he sustains them and he provides for their every need. Physical needs, bread from heaven he gives them, water from rocks he gives them. This is a mighty, holy God, but he's so caring and he's so attentive to his children's needs and he provides for them every step of the way. That's what that first section is is confessing, how great God has been to his people, how faithful and how caring he is. In verse 16, they shift and they begin to confess their ways. And how do they respond to this God and all he's done for them? It says they stiffened their neck and were disobedient. They refused to obey. They weren't mindful of all that God had done for them. They turned away from him and they, they, they decided, let's go back to slavery. This is how they respond to him. How did God respond to them then? Verse 17b, it says, but, but you are a God ready to forgive. And that, that famous description of God, you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he did not forsake them. Verse 18, back to the people's actions, when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, so stupid, they created this stupid, even when they create a stupid little idol and they attribute God's mighty saving acts to this stupid cow instead of to Yahweh, even when they blaspheme in that way, back to God, verse 19, still you are great in your mercies and you did not forsake them. What does he do? He continues to guide them through the wilderness. He continues to provide for them food and water. For years he sustains them. They lacked nothing their, their clothes didn't wear out. Their, their feet did not swell. What's that telling us about who God is? He's patient, isn't he? He's so caring and loving. Every single detail, every need he's taking care of. But, but he doesn't just provide the basics. In verse 22, he gives an abundance. He multiplies their children as the stars of heaven. He brings them into this rich land to possess he helps them subdue their enemies. He's providing an excess and abundance for them. They, they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted. That word delighted in verse 25 means to luxuriate. They, are, they luxuriate themselves in what? God's great goodness. And God is so, so good to them. Verse 26, so how do they respond to all this goodness and provision and abundance? They're grateful, right? Nope. It says, nevertheless, as usual, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they, continue, and they committed great blasphemies. It's almost like the two responses are growing in their responses but in opposite directions, right? This time, they're not just disobeying and rebelling, they're killing God's prophets. They're committing great blasphemies. Verse 27, back to God's response. You really get a sense that it's a relationship, don't you? Like they're, they're responding, to, at least on God's part. Um, a, a relationship is always what he's been after. And how does he respond to their rejection of relationship this time? It says, therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. Has his patience run out? 
Is his goodness gone? Has his mercies dried up? Is his steadfast love no longer steadfast? Of course not. He is still all of those things towards Israel, but you know what else he is? He's a good father. And like any good father, he, he disciplines his children. But unlike you earthly dads who are wicked, Jesus says, this, this heavenly father disciplines perfectly. In verse 27 to 31, you see this loving, merciful, good God discipline his children, and he disciplines them by putting them in exile. Um, but what does he do? He continues to hear their cries of help. He continues to call them to himself. He continues to warn them. It says many times he delivers them according to his great mercies. So his great mercies, that doesn't change. It's still there. Yet they continue to stiffen their neck, continue to disobey, continue to turn a stubborn shoulder, refusing to listen to him. Back and forth this prayer goes. And so to how does this confession section end? It, it, it ends exactly how it began with this huge vision of God in verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end for them of them or forsake them. Why? For you are a gracious and merciful God. What's that whole section saying? I think it's clearly saying that God is so good to his people. He's so patient. He's so merciful. He's a good father to his people. He's, he's so faithful despite Israel's continual rejection of him. He's been so gracious and merciful. It's just who he is. Verse 32, it shifts to the present. And this is the petition of the prayer, right? They haven't asked God anything yet. They've been, it's all been confession but here they turn to God, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. There's that huge vision of who God is. And they say, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since this time, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. What are they asking there? They're, they're saying, oh God, would you continue to be mindful of us? Which is a bold request, isn't it? It's, it's bold because, they, because of how they've been acting. They definitely deserve all the hardship that's come upon them, but it's been crushing. They're lamenting all of the sorrows that have come upon them because of their sin. And that's important, right? Yes, lament the sorrows, grieve the sorrows. God does that as well. If you're a parent who disciplines your, your children, it's, it kind of grieves you, doesn't it? God grieves those sorrows as well, even though you brought it upon yourself in that sense, but, but, but recognize that it's because of sin in your life. And that's what they do in verse 33. They say, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have been wicked. And it's, it's not self-pity, it's self-examination. It's, it's confession in that sense. They're, they're recognizing that God is righteous. He's been so good to them. He's been faithful to them. That's the first part of their confession. But the second part of their confession is, and we have acted wickedly. Do you, do you see in verse 33 the roof coming off? 
In verse 34, they look back again to their fathers and they confess unfaithfulness. I don't have time to get into the importance of a corporate generational confession of sin, uh, but it's important and biblical. Um, it's, it's what they do in verse 34. E- even in, in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works, right? They, didn't, they know nothing of hyper-Western individualism. They, they are part of a people and their people's story is unfaithfulness of God. The same for us and our old story. They're, they're confessing, man, it's always been that way. In verse 36, they confess the present and they say, behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And in its rich yield, the rich yield, where does it go? It goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress They're saying we've been brought back to the land and in one sense we have this freedom, right? Freedom to rebuild, freedom to do what we want, freedom to worship God as we please. But nothing's changed. We're still slaves. We're taxed an extraordinary amount. Even our livestock aren't really ours. We continue to be in great distress. And other things, in other words, Things aren't the way they're meant to be. Yes, we're back in the land, but it sucks. <laughs> it's, it's like we're slaves. We're, we're still in sorrow. And listen, they've attributed their present circumstances to what? To their sin. We've acted wickedly. That, that's their prayer of confession. God, you've been faithful. You're righteous. You're perfect in your care for us, but we've rejected you every step of the way would you still be mindful of us? And next week we'll get into the important aspect of, of response where they turn from their sin. Um, this morning might feel a little bit like a cliffhanger and that's okay. Um, it might be a little bit dissatisfying. Um, hey, it's Lent. It's okay to wait for the full picture. Um, it's okay to be sitting in that deep contemplation of your need for God but what I want you to see this morning is the appropriate response to God pulling off the roof of your life and awakening his people. Maybe for you the, for the first time in your life this morning, maybe for some of you for the hundredth time, the appropriate response is a worshipful recognition of the ways that we've been unfaithful to him and confessing that sin. Some of you are in the room and God is calling you today to do this for the very first time. He's, he's called you from being far from him. He's calling you to bring your weeping and your sorrows and he wants to turn that mourning into joy. And the way to gain that eternal joy is to humbly confess to him your sin and your need of Jesus as a savior and simply place your faith in Christ's finished work on the cross on your behalf. It's this recognition that we, we have all fallen, fallen short of the glory of God, that, that the wages of sin is death. You've seen that written on barns and stuff through our country. It's, you know that. But it's a recognition that, wow, that's actually true. And Because that's what you see through their prayer, isn't it? 
What you see is their, their sin continually leads them to death. It continually leads them to rejecting God and separation of God. It leads them to great distress and great sorrow. They're slaves. But listen, God is pursuing you in his goodness. But our sins keep pushing him away. And, And so maybe you feel like God is peeling off the roof of your life a bit. And you're, you're seeing who God is, how merciful and good he is, but also how your sins need to be dealt with. And he's simply, like a good father, calling you to, to recognize those things, confess your sin, and trust him. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, Today could be the, day, the first day that you do that. Today could be the day of salvation. Today could be the day that he, he turns your, your, your mourning into joy and he welcomes you into the family of God. Please. For the rest of you Christians, though, uh, confession of our sins, it's not a one-off thing. We're called to continually examine our lives and to live a life of confession and repentance Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a one-time thing. Him dealing with your sins, past, present, future, that's, that's a one-time event on the cross. It's dealt with, but it's, there's an important thing to understand in this, in this passage about your union with Christ and your communion with Christ. Your union with Christ has been established through his death on the cross, That is secure in that. I don't have time to read it all, but go read Ephesians 2. It's about your salvation. It's about your union with Christ. The Cliffsnos version is that you were dead in your sins. Um, You were without hope. You were separated from from God uh, because of your sin, uh, but God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were by nature children of wrath like these people in, in Nehemiah 9, Even then, he made us alive together with Christ. It was through his death on the cross that we now have peace with him, and we are able to come close to him. It's through the work of of Christ on on the cross that we are united with God in Christ. We're his family now. That's the message of Ephesians 2, and that's all by grace. Right Through confession of sin and faith in Christ's work on the cross, we are united with him. Paul goes on to say that we're the bride of Christ, Nothing can separate us from that union with him. Nothing can. But what about our, our communion with, with him? Because that's what Jesus died on the cross for. He didn't just die to cleanse you of your sins so that you can get into heaven. He died in your place so that you can have a relationship with him. What's that relationship like? So while nothing can affect your union with God through Christ, your sin and disobedience can interrupt and damage your communion with him, hence the need for confession. Um, take my relationship with my wife Jenny for an example. We, we, when Jenny and I said, I do, we entered into this union, right? We, we became one flesh. What, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Was we said to one another, nothing's going to break this apart. No, Death, sickness, hardship. You see why Paul says this is a picture of Christ in the church, right? We're joined together in this inseparable union. But what about when I hurt my wife, which I do? 
There needs to be recognition of wrongdoing before intimacy can be restored in that union, right? The union is secure, but the communion needs to be tended to. And our relationship with God in Christ is the same. Your union is secure. But what about your ongoing relationship with him? Are you experiencing and enjoying that relationship with him? Are, 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 are you convinced of John 15 again? Right? That, that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And so, you need to take holy living seriously in order to receive the benefits of a full life in Christ, that communion. We, we emulate his holiness. So friends, confession and holiness, they aren't chores to be begrudgingly done. Right? They are doorways into a joyful life in Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. We continually examine, we continually confess, continue to enjoy that relationship with him. These are the appropriate responses to spiritual awakening. Um, Just stand with me and we'll pray.